Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Sojourn College podcast, where we engage in God's Word in a way that transforms us. My name is Kyle, and today I have the opportunity of talking to you guys about the doctrine of the Son of God. And put simply, we're just going to be talking about Jesus. We're going to talk about His nature, His His person, His works, uh, His offices, and we're just going to see what the Scripture has to say about who Jesus is, who our great God and Savior uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so um, at times it might get a little confusing, uh, but um, I hope that this episode is is beneficial and helpful uh, and really just sparks your interest in trying to understand um, who Jesus is and just come to a greater realization that Jesus is truly God. He is fully God. And yet at the same time, he is fully and truly uh, human. Um, he lived uh, life in so many similar ways. He can relate to us. He was hungry, thirsty, and we'll get into all that uh, a little bit more later. But um, I, yeah, I'm excited just to dive into this doctrine with you all, and I hope that it will be beneficial and just helpful in your faith as you seek to know and love God for who He truly is. And so, yeah, let's go ahead and and get started. So today we're talking about the doctrine of God the Son. Um, Jesus Christ, ultimately the truest revel, the fullest revelation um, of God, the exact image of God to us in the man Jesus Christ. And so, I just want to start off by talking about the person of Jesus, uh, the person of God the Son. Uh, some of the language that you'll hear me use is the God-Man, Jesus, um, in the sense that He it's one person, Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus. Uh, the Christ. The Christ is a title, not his not his last name. Most of you probably know that. Uh, it means anointed one. And so it's one person. He is one person. Yet there are two natures that have been joined together. Um, and so first, I just want to acknowledge that Jesus was truly man. And I think this is something that our culture has, um, the, the broader culture has a, a less of an issue with in particular. Uh, I think it's almost universally acknowledge that Jesus was a historical person. Like You have to try very hard and dig up some deep conspiracy theories to deny the existence of Jesus as a man who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. Uh, I think it's universally undeniable. Um, and so the question is not if he existed, but rather who do we believe him to be? Uh, but So first, I just want to affirm that Jesus, we believe as Christians that Jesus was fully human. He's tr- a better word might be truly. He's he's truly human, um, and we believe that the scriptures teach us clearly in the gospels in particular um, that they give these true accounts about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And so, in the gospels, we see that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, and a lot of times, we use the virgin birth, uh, and I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. But I, I think a more helpful way is to think about the virgin conception. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't conceived um, as every other human being um, has been conceived supernaturally uh, by the Holy Spirit. He's utterly unique in in that sense. Um, And this is ultimately so that the sin of the father, right, would not be passed um, to the child because we believe in original sin. We believe that every human being, because of Adam, because of the fall, uh, original sin, we believe that original sin has has tainted every single uh, human being. And yet, uh, Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit, this supernatural conception, this virgin conception by the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is fully human. He is truly human. Um, yet, 
without sin. And so here we see a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the, the first kind of mentioning of the gospel that is through the seed of the woman that the, the head of the serpent, the head of, of Satan and, and his reign and rule over this earth and, and the destruction that he's brought would be crushed. Um, and so it's the virgin conception that makes possible Jesus' true humanity without this inherited sin um, so that the divine and human nature could be united. And so we affirm according to the gospels that Jesus was truly human. He was experienced birth like every single one of us. There was nothing in that sense. There was nothing supernatural about his birth uh, because he was born in a manger, in a, in a stable in this, um, in a very normal way he was born. His conception was supernatural. Um, And so, yeah, Jesus' humanity is evident all throughout the gospel accounts as we read not only of his birth, but how he grew uh, and how he grew from a child. Like Jesus didn't just pop out and he's just kind of like fully there in in his human mind, uh, aware and just kind of waiting to the proper age to speak or or however you want to imagine that. But realizing that, that Jesus was truly human and he grew and like his body grew and he actually like learned. We'll talk a little bit about like the human mind uh, of, of Jesus, um, but he was hungry. He was weary. Like the gospel say that he was tired and he he was thirsty. You think about John four and the, the woman at the well, like Jesus stopped for a drink of water and like, yes, he had a greater purpose there, but he was thirsty. He was tired. Um, other places he was hungry. And we think about the crucifixion. Jesus was beaten and his body bled. He didn't just appear to be human. He was truly embodied. He had a body. He was his body. He is his body. We are our bodies. Um, and um, so, so that just cannot be stated enough that Jesus was truly human. And even after the resurrection, we see that Jesus tells Thomas, most of you know the, the story of uh, what's been coined Doubting Thomas and how uh, Thomas said, you know, I, I have to touch him to believe that he's truly resurrected. And Jesus appears to the disciples and he says, Thomas, you, you know, touch me, put your hand in my side, feel like I am, I am real. I am truly human. And we see that Jesus ate with his disciples. Like he, he ate fish, he ate food. Um, and all of these things implying that Jesus had a, a real body. He was truly human. And we see that even Jesus's mind, Luke tells us that he increased in wisdom and stature. And the author of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience. Um, and so there's this, this very, this is this mystery that can be hard to understand at times, but to, to realize that like Jesus in his humanity um, increased in wisdom and stature and in responsibility and in knowledge. Um, and this explains Jesus's words in Mark, where Jesus says, most of you probably heard that Jesus doesn't know. Jesus says he doesn't know the day or the hour that he's returning. And you're like, how is this true? He's God. Um, and we believe in the Trinity, one God, three persons. And so he he has to know. Um, and this is where we kind of uh, just appeal to the reality that, that Jesus in his humanity did not know the day or the hour uh, of his return. And there's a sense in which he was dependent um, in his humiliated state is what we'd say. As, as he condescended and became a man and walked among us, uh, Jesus, um, in this sense, he, he did not know the day or the hour that he would return. And so we also see that Jesus had, he had a full range of human emotions, right? He experienced pity and he was moved by compassion. He was moved by love, by sadness, by grief, by sorrow, by a troubled spirit. And of course, we know that these things, uh, that, you know, emotions and, and these characteristics are, are also true of God, that God is compassionate, loving, and he experiences grief and sorrow. But, but we see very, in a, in a different way that, that Jesus experiences these in a, in a very human and tangible way. 
in, in Hebrews, I mentioned this earlier, tells us that Jesus himself learned obedience and, and not, not that he sinned, not that he sinned and had to learn to obey, but rather he learned to obey with more responsibility as he grew from childhood to adulthood. He, he took on more responsibility and he, responsibility. And he learned obedience in suffering through his suffering. And so we could say, yeah, much more about Jesus' humanity, and we could, uh, you know, you can you can speculate about about different things, but ultimately, I think Scripture uh, clearly teaches that that Jesus was um, fully human; he was truly human uh, in the the truest sense of that word, yet without sin. Um, and we see that that this is emphasized throughout, uh, and even I just think about First John emphasizing that. Christ must be proclaimed as coming in the flesh and that, that, um, how, yeah, the different letters in scripture just are fighting back against this Gnostic teaching that denies the humanity of Jesus. And I think we must cling tightly, uh, to this truth that Jesus was fully human and therefore he can represent and relate and, um, understand us. It's just such a beautiful reality to embrace. Um, and not only is it beautiful, but it's true. We believe that scripture teaches it. And so we, uh, we believe it. And um, the next aspect of Jesus is speaking about the person of Christ is affirming that Jesus is truly God, that Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who walked the earth 2000 years ago, was fully and completely and truly divine, right? And most of you, I'm just going to read off a couple of scriptures. Um, think about John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that the world was created through him, through this word, like Jesus himself is attributed with creation, like that it was through him that, that God created the world. In John 1, 14, we see that, that, um, that God became flesh and walked among us, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That word for tabernacles is, is the temple. It's the dwelling place. It's the presence of God. And so God's presence was literally among us, God himself um, in Jesus. We see in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, uh, I'll just read it. Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Titus 2, 13 uh, says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul is, is here again, clearly saying that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is God. He calls him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And he says he's the exact imprint of his nature. Not, not similar, not in the likeness of, but he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. No mere human or no mere lesser, lesser deity holds up the universe by the word of his power. Uh, these things are only true of God, God himself. And then in the gospels, uh, I mean, there's so many more examples we could, you know, read off uh, from Paul and the epistles. But then in the gospels, we see that Jesus, um, first, he just emphasized that he is king that he is the king of this kingdom of God. Um, and if it's the kingdom of God, then the king must be God. And if Jesus is claiming to be king, then he is claiming to be God himself. Um, and ultimately, God, when he established the, the nation of Israel, uh, before the people rebelled and, and asked for a king, God declared himself king. 
And so we see that Jesus claiming to be the king of this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, uh, is claiming to be God himself. Not only this, but Jesus in the gospels received worship uh, from the disciples and from other people who, who realized that they were unworthy to be in his presence in these little moments, in these glimpses where, where God, where Jesus, you know, silences the sea or at the transfiguration and in these places where, where almost the, the veil is peeled back and the disciples begin to worship Jesus. Jesus does not reject this. And, and any good Jew who, uh, in this time would, who would receive worship from other people, I mean, to do that as a Jew, it would be unheard of. And so this just is a testimony to the fact that Jesus knew who he was. Like Jesus claimed and knew that, that he was God and he was worthy of their worship. And then Jesus himself in, in John uh, equates himself with God the Father. He says, you know, I, I am the resurrection of life. He says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And, and that statement just floored, I'm sure, everybody uh, who who was listening at that time. And, and this is why Jesus was ultimately crucified, right? That they, they attributed him with blasphemy. They're saying, you know, he's claiming to be not only the Messiah, but he's claiming himself to be God. And so Jesus was crucified for blasphemy. And finally, the, the, the resurrection uh, demonstrates that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, uh, that he is God incarnate, um, who came to deliver us, his people, from their sin, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father with all glory and all power for all of eternity. And so we see these two natures in the person of Christ. We see the divine nature and the human nature. And we can see, like as I've just quickly talked about them, that these two natures are distinct. And we must rightfully acknowledge that uh, God the Son, that, that Jesus, right, has eternally existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like we believe that God is eternal, like the triune God, one God, three persons has eternally existed uh, before all of creation. God, the son didn't come into existence when Jesus did. He is eternally existing. He is himself God. And so we must draw some distinctions here to emphasize that, that Jesus has existed eternally with God, the father and God, the spirit. Yet we must also affirm that this divine and human nature of Jesus upon the incarnation, when Jesus became incarnate. Uh, was conceived of the Virgin Mary, that these two natures, though distinct, were now completely united in one person forevermore. And so this human nature was added to the divine nature. And so that Jesus, for all of eternity, will be embodied and will be have a a human and physical body. Like when we see Jesus, um, when God restores all things and when Jesus comes again um, and after the judgment and when heaven and earth are united and we live forever in God's presence in his kingdom in the, the heavenly city, we will see and embrace Jesus with a physical body. Uh, we will all have physical bodies. We're not just going to be these kind of disembodied spirits. Um, and so now and for, forevermore, Jesus um, these two natures, the divine and human nature, are completely united in uh, the one person, Jesus Christ. And so, um, yeah, those are just some some reflections on the person of Jesus. He is truly uh, divine and truly human. Uh, some other fancier language for that is like the hypostatic union, right? He's fully God, uh, truly God. Some people would say 100% God, 100% man. Um, and it's this this mystery of these two natures that are completely um, united. And so it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. I would just encourage you to continue to, uh, yeah, read more, reference some scripture and, and really dig into the person of Jesus. I also want to spend some time, uh, talking about 
the works of Jesus, uh, the works of God the Son, like why did God send Jesus? Why did he have to become a man and live this life and die this death? And so what was it that Jesus set out to accomplish? What was his mission? What was God's mission in sending the son uh, to become a man, to walk among us, to live a perfect life and to die uh, a gruesome death and be raised from the dead? Like what was his mission, his work, his purpose? Um, and there's kind of two, two ways I want to talk about this. First, the humiliation and the exaltation. And so the humiliation of Christ is, is associated with Jesus's crucifixion. Um, and ultimately the kind of the point being made here is, is the atonement of Christ. And so Jesus came and, and he was like us. He, he was born into this world. Uh, he learned and grew and, and he was lived a perfect and righteous life. So yes, he is our example. Like Jesus is a perfect example of what it means to be human. Like if we want to look at what God intended humanity to live and look like, Jesus is our perfect example. And that is one of, could be, it, it is one of the works that, that Jesus did. He lived a perfect life, his righteousness, his obedience for us, that perfect example. Um, and, but all of this culminates in this central point in the gospels where Jesus goes to the cross and lays down his life for us and atones for our sin. And there's there's different views of the atonement, and I'm not going to get into all of that today. We don't have time uh, for all of that. But I just want to just tell you all that the sacrificial atonement of Christ could be summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says uh, this. This is a familiar verse. You probably know this, but it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus, living a perfect life, took on our sin at the cross in our place. You think about the sacrificial system that was in place in Israel that, you know, a a lamb had to be slain. A spotless, perfect lamb had to be slain for the sins of the people. And in the same way Jesus was crucified, he died this death, taking on our sin wiping our slate clean before God so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be made right before God. And so the death of Jesus atoned, it covered, it redeemed, it paid for our sin debt, removing our guilt and shame, doing something that that the blood of goats and that the blood of, of sheep could never do. All of those sacrifices pointed forward to the work that Jesus was to accomplish. It was only Jesus's death that could accomplish this for us because we see in the garden that that when Adam and Eve took this tr- the fruit from the tree when they rebelled against God we see that immediately after this happened the only way for God to cover the sin was he he uh, struck down animals and covered them with these uh with with the skin of these animals and so we see that sin produces guilt and shame and and separates us from God and Therefore, we need a covering. We need something to to get rid of this guilt and this shame so that we can be restored back into right relations with God so that we can walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God and, and relate to God as God intended and created us to be in relationship with him. And it was only Jesus's death that could accomplish this for us once and for all, for all who repent and trust in his finished work on the cross. Right, So we were guilty. We were alienated from God. We were under God's holy wrath. We were enslaved to sin and we were rightly condemned, rightly condemned for our rebellion, for our sin. 
but through Jesus, by his death, by the death of one who lived a perfect life that we could never live, who himself was God, through him we are forgiven. Through him our guilt is washed away. Through him our shame is rid of. Through him we are brought back into intimate fellowship with God. Through him the wrath of God is satisfied. Through him, we are set free from the power of sin and death. Through him, we are counted righteous before our God. And our God, like a loving, like the loving father he is, runs to us and embraces us, puts a ring on our finger, puts shoes on our feet, and welcomes us in to the party. For those of you who didn't know, that was the story of the prodigal son. And, and so God looks at us and he says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased because he sees the righteousness and the love of Jesus who took and washed away our sin and made us righteous and clean before God. And so legally we are declared righteous that there is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we also see that the atonement of Christ uh, accomplishes this cosmic victory And so there's this continual language of the gospel. We see that as the kingdom of God is drawing near in Jesus, that Jesus is casting out demons. He's defeating this present darkness. And so I want you to see that also at at Christ's death, there's this final victory over the power of darkness. It's this already not yet. The kingdom of God has already entered in and is beginning to, to, to reign and to rule. And we still see present darkness around us. We still see kind of the, the trails of, uh, of sin and death, but, but we have hope knowing that Christ's death has accomplished a final victory that death no longer has a sting because we have a greater hope that is seated eternally in the heavens and is secure in the heavens. And so Jesus' death on the cross accomplished a final victory over the powers of darkness uh, that have reigned in this present world since the fall. In John 12, 31, Jesus says, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He is cast out by Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, we can confidently proclaim this victory that through Jesus at the cross, um, sin, death, and Satan, our greatest enemies, have fully and finally been defeated. They no longer reign over us. And this is all true. Like this, that was the work of Jesus' death. That's what his death accomplished. And I think equally as important, the resurrection is this stamp of approval that says all of the things that I just said are true. Like Jesus actually accomplished those things because he was raised from the dead. That is God's stamp of approval of saying, I I receive this sacrifice. I receive my son's loving death on your behalf. And Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ was not raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But he goes on boldly and confidently to proclaim that, that, no, Jesus Jesus has been raised from the dead. And I proclaim that to you confidently. And that proves that everything that I've just previously said about the atonement of Jesus and how we've been reconciled to God, all of that is true because Jesus was raised from the dead because that tomb was empty. And therefore, our salvation has been accomplished, that the work on the cross finished um, fully and completely God's work of salvation for us. And so some quick application, um, I want to share with you finally just about the offices of Christ, um, how he is the prophet, priest, and king. And 
I'm ending with the offices of, of Jesus because I, I hope that it can be an encouragement to you. I hope you can apply this in a, in a practical way because the implications of these truths in our lives can have a potentially a more, a more practical ring to them as we understand uh, how this doctrine shapes our view of who God is, of who Jesus is, and what he's accomplished. And I hope you can kind of fit all of what we've just talked about into these different categories of Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king. And so in Israel, God had established three offices to lead and guide the people, right? So there was the prophet, and there was the priest, and there was the king. And so the Old Testament scriptures then, and these were three distinct offices with three different works, and they were they were each supposed to do different things. And the Old Testament scriptures then projected the coming of one, of a Messiah who would be all three of these, who would be the prophet, priest, and king uniting these three offices. And we see that Jesus perfectly fulfills these three roles and how beautiful, like not only is this true, but it is beautiful news for us that Jesus, that God fulfills these three roles, but not only, but God as the God man, God incarnate, one who is like us, one who relates to us in the truest sense. Right, so a, a prophet was supposed to reveal God and his way. Like God would, it was the mouthpiece of God. God would speak through the prophets, revealing who God was and what God wanted them to do and revealing their way to salvation. And what better person to reveal God than God himself, right? What better person to communicate to humans, to humanity than through a human, than through humanity? Right. And so Jesus perfectly fulfills this role of the prophet because not only is he God revealing God, but he is man revealing God to man. And this is so, so beautiful. It's such good news. And not only is Jesus the perfect prophet, but he is the perfect priest. A priest mediates between God and his people. He's, he's a go-between. And what better person to stand before God for us than God himself who became a man and lived a perfect life on our behalf and who can sympathize with us in our weakness and one who experienced a human life in this fallen world and yet was without sin? Who better to be a priest for us than Jesus and king? A king rules over creation, including humanity. And what better person, what better person to rule us than the one who laid down his life in love for those who were his enemies? I mean, it's so hard for me to imagine like what it really means to love my enemies. And that that is can only um, be magnified when we think about like what we've done against God in our sin. And what better king, what better person to rule us than Jesus who laid down his life in love for his enemies. And now he calls us friends. And so we serve a righteous, a just, a loving, a good, a compassionate, and an infinitely merciful king. And so I hope you see how comforting this news about Jesus is. That there's really, there is so much here to be explored. There's so much to be learned. There's so much to worship over in this doctrine. And we've really barely skimmed to the surface of, of each one of these uh, points and aspects. But we serve a God who is like no other, a God who became like us, a God who is perfectly for us because he became like us and lived and died a death that we deserve for us in our place so that we could become like him, so that we could be restored back into loving and right relationship with him. And so I, I hope that this 
this episode has encouraged you. Um, and I hope that this will just lead you to seek and to know this one who has loved you so much. Like we serve a, a beautifully unique God. We serve the only one and true God. And I just think about all these other religions in the world and, and how distinct and unique our belief is and how distinct our God is among these other gods and religions. Like who among the gods is like you, O Lord, that you would become like us so that we can know you all in love so that we could experience and know your love perfectly. And so I hope this episode has encouraged you. Uh, Please continue to dig into these doctrines more um, and be looking out for the next episode on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for listening.